Okay, welcome again to Church History for Dummies. Let me pray and we'll start. Father, thank you for another uh, evening together and look at your word and to look at our history, uh, our brothers and sisters, sisters who have gone before us and we pray that as we look at their lives, we would learn from them and that we would be changed. So we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to help us and we ask uh, that you would now in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, continuing our study of the Apostolic Fathers and what was happening in the early church and what was happening in the second century. And tonight we're going to look at the doctrine of the Apostolic Fathers, particularly their doctrine of the sacraments or their doctrine of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion, whatever you call it. We'll cover baptism tonight. Uh, I think we'll get through it all. Maybe not. And then next week we'll look at the Lord's Supper. And then, Lord willing, we'll begin the Apologists the following week. So, what did baptism look like in the second century? What did communion and the Lord's Supper look like? How did Christians do these things that churches normally do? In order to help us, we're going to look at the Epistle of Barnabas which we looked at last time when we were together. And Barnabas says this about baptism, and I think he's alluding to a passage in Revelation chapter 22. I'm not sure. I try to dig around. I'm assuming that's the passage that he's alluding to. And he equates this passage with baptism, and that's the first thing on your notes. It says, what does he say next? And there was a river flowing on the right hand, and beautiful trees grew out of it. And whosoever shall eat of them shall live forever. He means to say that we go down into the water laden with sins and filth and rise up from it bearing fruit in the heart, resting our fear and hope uh, on Jesus in the spirit. And whosoever shall eat of them shall live forever. He means that whoever hears and believes these things spoken shall live forever. So notice what Barnabas is saying to us about baptism. I think he's talking about Revelation 22 verses 1 to 3 and the river of life and the trees that sprouted. Uh, He says we go down into the water laden with sins and filth and then we come out and we're like a tree and we bear fruit. But notice the last sentence there. Who is Barnabas saying that these things are true of? He says, he that believes these things spoken shall live forever. So understand in the second century, there was a close connection between regeneration and baptism. There's a close connection in the second century between regeneration and baptism. What is... uh, Regeneration. I assume that you know what baptism is, but what is regeneration? Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit makes us alive so that we can repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And so when you share the gospel with someone, when you share the gospel with an unbeliever, they are not saved unless they are regenerated, unless they are made alive by the Spirit. That means they are dead spiritually, okay? Where in God's word does it say that we are dead spiritually? Any passage come to mind in God's word when it says that we are all, uh, because we're in Adam, dead spiritually? Romans 5. Romans 5 talks about being in Adam, yeah. 
Ephesians 2. I'm thinking of Ephesians 2. Let me read Ephesians 2 and hear what Paul says. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So two times Paul says we are dead in our trespasses. So uh, an unbeliever is dead in their trespasses and sins. There you go. So you know that this is the ground and they're dead. There's a pretty little flower. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And regeneration is when someone shares the gospel with them and the Holy Spirit makes them alive so that they can repent and trust. The two elements of conversion, repent and trust. Okay? They can't repent and trust in Jesus unless the Spirit makes them alive because they're what? They're dead in their trespasses and sins. So regeneration, or you could say it this way, uh, turn and trust. If you just took notes, sorry I erased that. To repent and believe. Or turn and trust if you want to make it uh, alliteration there and work together. So regeneration is the Holy Spirit making you alive so that you can repent and trust in Jesus. So regeneration precedes faith and repentance. Okay, This is very important. Regeneration precedes us repenting and turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. Here's how our statement of faith here at Grace describes this process. Uh, in our statement of faith, point G under regeneration, it says, We believe that those who by God's free grace are regenerated by the Holy Spirit become new creatures and thus are enabled to repent and forsake sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior and are delivered from condemnation and receive eternal life. Those who are thus regenerated will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Okay, so that's regeneration. And in the early church, there is a close relationship with regeneration and baptism. There's this close relationship with belief and baptism. Now... This does not mean that baptismal regeneration is true. You might run across this somewhere. Baptismal regeneration. Anybody have any idea what this might mean? I just described regeneration to you. So what would baptismal regeneration mean? Baptized to be regenerated. Baptized to be regenerated. Okay? So you can... You're not born again until you come out of the waters. And there are denominations that believe this, that you are born again after you're baptized. Okay, that's baptismal regeneration. It's the belief that you are not regenerated by the Spirit, not made alive spiritually, not saved until you have baptism. Guess what? We don't believe this here at Grace. I don't think this is biblical. So as we continue our discussion, please understand, as we look at the apostolic fathers who are seeing a close relationship between regeneration and baptism, 
Please understand, we are not talking about baptismal regeneration. But when you read the apostolic fathers, you might think that they believed in baptismal regeneration. But they didn't. And when you read some passages in Scripture, you might think that baptismal regeneration is true. Which is where other denominations that believe this get this. For instance, there's a few passages that might give us this impression. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what does Paul say? He says we're saved by the what of regeneration? The the washing of regeneration. And so for the early Christians, where does that washing take place? Where does the Christian come in contact with water? In their baptism, okay? Now, I think it's a spiritual washing that Paul is talking here about, but some people would read that and say, oh, when you come out of the water, the physical waters of baptism, you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But we're not, right? We're we're, we're made alive by the Spirit, and then we might get baptized in a river or a baptistry or something. So you might read that passage in Titus and think, Sounds like baptismal regeneration. Where's another famous passage? What's the most famous passage that those who believe in baptismal regeneration, what passage would they go to? Any idea? 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 might be one. Verse 21. You want to read it, Mike? Yeah, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they would argue from that verse, baptism saves you. Or Acts 2.38, what does Peter say on Pentecost? Repent and what? Every one of you and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Now, in Scripture, Scripture kind of uses different phrases to describe the experience of salvation. Sometimes Scripture just says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth and be saved. Peter says, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. These are just all synonymous terms that are used in Scripture to describe the process of salvation. But clearly, I think you can see in Scripture, we are not regenerated through the waters of baptism. There is a spiritual baptism, I think, that takes place when you're regenerated. You're baptized into the Spirit in that sense, but not uh, through the actual physical waters of baptism. So notice the close connection then with baptism and forgiveness because it was very difficult for the early church to separate these. Again, keep in mind, they don't have many copies of the New Testament handy, if at all, maybe a few letters. All they're working with is the Old Testament. So they connected faith and they connected belief with what happens in the water. Again, they don't believe in baptismal regeneration, but they connect faith with baptism And it's not a work on our part, because what did Titus say? Titus said, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So are we saved by works? No. Does baptism save? No. But the early church still saw this close connection between faith and what happens to us in the water. It's all of grace, but for the apostolic fathers... What happens to us physically in the water is still very much important. The physical is important. 
for the apostolic fathers. Just like it was in the beginning. When did God's grace first come to humanity? Come with me to the Garden of Eden. And Eden, the Hebrew word, is related to the idea of pleasure. I like saying that better than the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Pleasure. It implies that God is good. And he gives us all these things to enjoy. Let's go back to the Garden of Pleasure. How does God create the world? How does God create man? It's all something that you could see and feel and touch. You could feel the grass that he made. You could feel the ocean. You could pick up a flower and smell it. It was all physical. So how did God create Adam? Was he just a spirit? No. He creates Adam out of the ground. Then he breathes life in me. He gets his fingers down in the mud, rolls up his sleeves, uh, fashions him. God gets dirt underneath his fingernails, if you will. Took dirt and made mad. He took a what out of Adam's side to make Eve? A rib. It's all physical. Something you could touch, something you could feel, something you could see. And then when Adam looked at Eve... What did Adam see? Did Adam see a ghost or a phantom or a spirit? No, he saw a naked woman and he said, whoa, man, woman. What did Adam sing? You are bone of my bone and what? Flesh of my flesh. Not you are soul of my soul and spirit of my spirit. You're my soulmate. He didn't say that, did he? It was all physical. Your bone of my bone. It was all visible, touchable, not ethereal. The emphasis in the passage is on Eve's fleshiness. It's on her boniness. It's flesh and bone. And so God's first grace with humanity uh, in, in this relationship is with the physical, the, the material. The emphasis in Genesis is on your physicality, your body. Think about this. And no one is embarrassed about it. No one is embarrassed about the garden of pleasure except the 21st century evangelical Christian. And so the very first grace that we see, the very first grace that we see is here in creation with Adam and Eve. The very first grace is very physical. It's unmerited favor. We didn't deserve to be made, did we? Did Adam deserve to be made? No, but God made him. And in this act of grace, he fashions Adam and breathes life into him and sticks him in the garden of pleasure and says, you can eat everything you want except that one tree. And here's a woe man for you to be your partner. That's all grace. But it's all very physical. God makes us out of dirt. And then the second act of grace is after the fall, after Adam and Eve Sin, we see it early in Genesis 3. There's a promise that a redeemer is going to come. And so the second act of grace is the incarnation of Jesus. We get this promise that there is a redeemer who is going to come. He's going to crush the head of the snake. And it's all what? Very physical. God comes as Savior. God comes as Redeemer in the person of Jesus to crush the snake. But it's not an act of creation like the first act of grace when God made Adam. It's an act of incarnation. Jesus comes as a human being. It's very physical, very fleshy. It's not ethereal. He's not a ghost like some heretics said. He's not just a spirit. He didn't just appear. 
God becomes flesh. God becomes a human being, just like us. So you could see him, you could touch him, you could hear him, you could tickle him. And then what does Luke tell us about Jesus after his resurrection? Jesus appeared to the disciples in Luke 24, verse 39, and he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's saying, I have flesh and bones. Just like Adam and Eve, the emphasis is on his fleshiness and his boniness. Resurrected Jesus is just like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. And so now we come to the third act of God's grace to us. And this would be resurrection. Our resurrection. It's got third act of God's grace. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 24? He says, not only... The creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. The redemption of what? Our bodies. In this hope we are saved. So your adoption as a child of God is the redemption of your body, flesh and bone. Your redemption is all about your fleshiness and your boniness. And so the emphasis here in God's relationship with humanity is the physical, the material, the touchable, the seeable, the hearable, the smellable. That has always been front and center with our relationship with God. God has always been relating his grace to you and to me through that which is physical. He always relates his grace to us through that which is physical. Now think about that. It's how he created you. It's what Jesus became in the incarnation, which was his greatest demonstration of grace. And it's how God's going to relate to you throughout all eternity on the new earth. Where he will be doing what, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there's immeasurable grace for ages upon ages. Where? The new earth. He will raise us up, resurrect us physically to be the recipients of his grace for ages upon ages, plural, whatever in the world that means. On a very real and physical new earth. For eternity in a physical body. God is going to be showering his grace upon you. Because God always relates his grace to us. Through that which is physical. And that's what he plans on doing for eternity. Now I said all of that. To help us understand the early church's view of baptism. Believe it or not, you wonder where I'm going with all that, don't you? Okay. Well, we're setting ourselves up to understand the early church's view of the sacraments, the ordinances of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And so, if God has always been relating to you in physical ways through physical things, tell me if we talk about baptism, what's so unspiritual about water? Is the water of Baptism unspiritual? Are the waters of baptism unspiritual? Who cre- who's the creator of water? Did the devil make water? Does the devil own the copyright on water? 
Is that why some Christians associate water baptism with works? I mean, who created water? God did. So what is so evil about water if God made it? Can God make water spiritual? Can God make water spiritual? Think about that. Well, what does spiritual mean? Does it mean just not physical? Let me ask you, can something physical be spiritual? Can water, for example, which is physical, can it be used for spiritual purposes? Something physical can be spiritual. But in our day and age, spiritual usually means something that is not physical. Right? Most evangelical Christians have been taught that something physical cannot be spiritual. But let me ask you, have you ever worshipped without your body? Your body's very physical, by the way. Have you ever worshipped without your body? Have you ever sung a worship song without using your vocal cords? Have you ever read the Bible without your eyes? See, all of a sudden, we have all become very physical with our spirituality, haven't we? And so who came up with the idea that our physicality is not a part of our spirituality? As if that old hymn in the 70s is true. Set my spirit free that I might worship thee. As if you can't worship God physically. What does Paul say? Lift up what? Holy what? What does he tell the men to do in, in, in Timothy? Lift up holy hands. It's physical. Okay? Let's all try to attempt to worship God without our physicality next Sunday, okay? Let's all try to receive God's grace without using anything physical about us. Let's try to receive revelation from God, from His Word, without using our ears and our eyes and our hands. You see, we can't do it. Spirituality has been defined in contemporary circles as that which is emotional and rational and not physical in any way. And yet none of us has a spiritual life apart from our physicality. See, your, physical, your spirituality and my spirituality, spirituality, our spiritual lives are connected with our bodies whether we like it or not. Now, I've seen some looks at me like, you are... You're walking on some very thin ice here, Pastor. This is sounding a little weird. Okay, well, let's go to the Apostle Paul, okay? What does Paul say in Romans 12, 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Bodies, okay? To present your what? Bodies. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your blank worship. Spiritual. Wait. Present your bodies? The physical? And it's spiritual? Hmm. You see, you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. This is who God made you to be, and it's how He relates to you by His grace. It's very physical. And so we live in a world that hates the physical. So many people hate their bodies. Some Christians even think that heaven, we're just going to be like floating on these clouds with no bodies, just these kind of souls or spirits. But we, we live in a world where we have devalued the physical so much so that now, where do most of our relationships happen now? Social Online, <laughs> social media, email, text. I'm all for social media. 
But one thing that it has done, it's taken away the physical aspect of our relationships. And that just feeds into our hatred of our bodies so that our avatars or our pictures that become a part of our profiles online, many times they're not even pictures of us, are they? My profile pic on Instagram and Twitter is not a picture of me. It's a picture of a woodcut that I did of Rod Serling. I'm not even me online. And so there's been this subtle shift away from the physical and it's crept into how we view worship in the church. We no longer think that God can communicate his grace to us through the physical. So we live in this thoroughly dualistic world where the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And one of the easiest places to find this kind of dualism is in Western evangelical Christianity. Now, we're going to look more at this dualism when we look at the heresy of Gnosticism in several weeks. But we're talking about baptism in the early church, particularly the second century. Physical things for them were not evil. Physical things could be used for spiritual purposes. And so for the early church in the second century, if God ordains that it is in the water that you would, before the church community, proclaim your faith in Christ and that his grace would come upon you, well, the early church said, of course, of course, God has always been relating to us through physical uh, things. So of course, that's where we do it. The tabernacle, the mosaic tabernacle, physical Solomon's temple that we spent several, several months ago describing in detail was what? Very physical. The sacrificial system, very physical. Worship with song and instruments, very physical. The incarnation of Jesus, very physical. The resurrection, very physical. The return of Jesus, very physical. The new heavens and the new earth, very physical. And so the point of the early church and the apostolic fathers is that something physical can be either spiritual or not. Physical things can be spiritual things depending on who has grasped them. God can take physical things and he can make them spiritual. If the spirit of God is involved, something physical can be spiritual. And so with the devil too, right? The devil can take something physical and make it spiritual and wicked. The devil can take water and turn it into something evil, can't he? You know why? You know what the first ingredient of mayonnaise is? Water. (laughs) The devil can take water and do something very wicked and evil with it. Keep in mind that the apostolic fathers are writing. This is very important to understand. We have to get into their mindset. The apostolic fathers are writing, and for some church communities, they don't have any of the New Testament. They might have a copy of Mark's Gospel, maybe 1 Corinthians, and that's it. We're not sure what they had. The New Testament, as we know it, has not been collected and formalized yet. And so they had many oral stories that were passed down, passages of Scripture that were passed down orally, but they don't have many in writing. Some had more than others, and so they are reading what they have, and they're trying to process all that they've heard orally, and then the apostolic fathers are taking that information, and they're writing about it. Now, they had the Old Testament, but what would you say about baptism from the Old Testament? What would you say about the Lord's Supper 
from the Old Testament. And so the apostolic fathers are doing the best they can with what they have. And they see a definite connection between the physical and God's grace as it comes to us in the sacraments or in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what we're doing tonight is we're just trying to explain what led them to certain practices. We're trying to understand their theology with what revelation they had, which was the Old Testament and parts, maybe all of the New Testament, but at least parts. So remember from our first few classes, revelation is what God says to us in his word. Theology is what we say about what God has said. The apostolic fathers, with the revelation that God had given them in the Old Testament, and whatever copies of New Testament letters they had, and whatever oral stories that were passed down, they are developing their theology with what they have. And so when we read them, Their words are not on par with Scripture, obviously, but we can read them and seek to see if what they are saying is helpful. Maybe they can shed light on something that we have missed. Are they seeing something that we are missing as a result of the overwhelming pressure of our cultural context, or did they totally miss it and totally drop the ball? We may not agree with the Apostolic Fathers and the Church of the Second Century. We may not agree with their view of baptism, That something happens in the water when you go down and come up. We may not agree with that, but this is how they saw the scriptures. The Bible commands us to be baptized. And so the apostolic fathers, knowing that God has always used the physical to impart his grace to us, like in the tabernacle and in the temple, they really believed that something would happen when you went down into the water. Again, not salvation. They're not saying that. They didn't think that you were saved just because you were baptized, but they did see God working through the physical. And if we struggle with this, we have to ask ourselves, what do we have against water? Why would we ever think that God doesn't work through the physical? What would give us that idea? Where is that in the Bible? Where does it say God works not through the physical? God has always used the physical. Now, Questions or comments on this? I personally believe that God in His grace does impart His grace or His unlimited power to us when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're feeding on Christ by faith. The Spirit is there strengthening us, isn't He? Does the Spirit strengthen you when you take the Lord's Supper and you say, I believe God's promises? That's grace. Unlimited power, right? If you're a new Christian, you come up out of the water and say, oh, this stinks now. Everyone's clapping and cheering, and you're like, yes, God's grace and His strength. He's empowering me in this moment to leave the waters of baptism and go live for Him. So God has always used the physical. So do I think that God in His grace comes and gives us strength through the Holy Spirit when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and when we're baptized or see someone being baptized? Absolutely, I believe that. Questions or comments? As far as taking the Taking communion, and Paul says, "Do it right, or you might die." Yeah. So there's something going on there. I've always there's definitely a negative side of his power. Yeah. It's not just the wafer and the wine. I mean, you got to be in the right state of mind, and you have to be right with God before you take it, or you you can be sick or die. There's there's a negative side, and if there's a negative side, side. there has to be a positive side of his power and grace coming. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I completely understood that baptismal regeneration when I was baptized. 
I'm, I'm a relatively new Christian. I mean, I'm not like yeah. most of the people in this room. Um, and I don't think I understood that when I was baptized. Yeah. But I know, I think when you were baptized, you believed in Jesus. Yeah. It's just we're, we're learning and growing. And sometimes you're a new believer and you're thinking, oh, if I go into the waters, mm-hmm. then I'll be saved. And that could be something you caught or just something you thought. But were you saved before that? Yes. But, you know, when, when we become born-again Christians, we're like immediate quasi-heretics, aren't we? <laughs> Meaning our theology is really off, Right. And so we learn and we grow, yeah. So it, it's it's and that's part of his the process of growing is you know sometimes we don't know that uh, what it means and it's not until later that's why we try to stress when people are baptized here remember your baptism because if you are a new believer and you're baptized man you don't understand the significance of all this. You might have an idea, a little bit, but as you grow as a Christian, you look back and when you see someone get baptized, you're like, oh, I remember. Like, now I can remember my baptism and it, be, it means even more to me, so much more to me now. And hopefully 20 years from now, my baptism, looking back on it, will mean even more to me because I've grown as a Christian. So, yeah. Okay, any other questions? Moving on. Let's talk about their view of baptism. Baptism for the second century Christian was an inauguration into the church community. It was predicated by weeks and sometimes months of preparation. So something sounds like Debbie could have, could have learned and grown from. And so maybe we need to look at their, their understanding of baptism and say maybe we need to do things like they did. It was predicated by weeks and sometimes months of preparation. Now, remember what we saw last week. Just weeks before this, some of these new Christians were worshiping in pagan temples. Some of these these Christians used to offer sacrifices to idols. They used to be involved in sacred prostitution. They used to go to the the Colosseums and watch Christians, I mean, lions rip apart Christians. And that, that was entertainment for them. Oh, that was a good one. Did you see that? Pass the popcorn. That guy just got his head eaten by that lion. And then they become saved, and this is what they came out of. So there's a lot of discipleship on the front end, teaching them about what Christians believe. Weeks of preparation, teaching them about distinctive Christian beliefs, contrary to what they had learned in their pagan lifestyle. They would teach them doctrine. And after they had gone through their class, water baptism for dummies, you would bring them before the church body. And asked them a series of questions in which all the church community could hear their answers. Questions like, do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? And you would tell the church body, yes, I believe. Do you believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, I believe. So they would go through the essentials of the faith in front of the church body. And then after this, they would be baptized And then after they came up out of the waters of baptism, they would be given entrance into the meal of the church community, the Lord's Supper or communion, and they would take communion for the very first time. So you couldn't eat the Lord's Supper unless you were baptized, and you couldn't be baptized until you went through some kind of class where you were taught the essentials of Christian belief and doctrine and then answered in the affirmative before the church community. They didn't just baptize pagans. They didn't baptize people who had an experience. They and we baptize people who believe Christianly. 
It, it was a communal reality. The whole church community would come together. And many times, the person who was being baptized would have to fast several days beforehand. And sometimes other church members would come alongside them and say, I'm fasting with you as we prepare for your baptism. So it was a communal reality. We've talked about from the very beginning of this class. They're trying to downplay individuality. Now, let's read what the Didache, which we looked at last time, says. If you remember, it was like a church manual, how to do church. It's the second quote on your paper. Here's what it says. Concerning baptism, baptize thus. Having first rehearsed all of these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in living water, but if thou hast no running water, baptize in other water, and if thou canst not in cold, then in warm. But if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before the baptism, let the baptizer and him who is to be baptized fast, and any others who are able, and thou shalt bid him who is to be baptized to fast one or two days before. See, the early church did not view Christianity as an individual thing. It was a communal thing. They're downplaying individuality. And so baptism was and is a paramount moment in the life of the Christian and the church community to which he or she belonged. Notice also that the Didache stresses that Christians are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they had obviously read Matthew's Gospel the ending of it, or they had heard an oral tradition that flowed from this because they're picking up on the words of Jesus in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission and how they're to baptize in the name of the Trinitarian God. So notice, as we talked a little bit last week, the doctrine of the Trinity is already a part of their worship and a part of their sacraments or the ordinances. The doctrine of God and the doctrine of Trinity is, it was and is an essential component of Christian belief. And so they were being told when they came for baptism, they were being told, you are being baptized in the name of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so belief in the Trinitarian God is essential to Christian belief, and we can't miss teaching this to those who want to be baptized. So anybody that we want to walk with in baptism, we need to make sure... They know that God exists. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because it makes no sense to baptize someone into the name of the Trinitarian God if the one being baptized knows nothing about him. Do you want to take a kid up into the baptistry and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the kid says, who's that? So we want to teach people about the Trinitarian God that we serve and worship because we're baptizing that person into their name, into God's name. But notice, too, that the Didache references that one is to be baptized in living water. What is living water? Why baptize in living water? Why baptize in running water? Why not a swimming pool? Why does it have to be Running water. Again, this is their understanding. I'm not saying that your baptism is not valid if you were baptized in a swimming pool or a lake or a hot tub or a baptistry. Is anybody here baptized in a swimming pool or a lake? Hot tub? Okay. This is the understanding of the Apostolic Fathers. So when you read them, you can't think, oh, my baptism's not valid because this is what they are saying with the information that they have. And they're saying 
that you should use running water if possible. This is how they understood the scriptures. But why? Why baptize in living water? Why baptize in running water? Jesus was baptized? Yeah. And the image of being washed, for them, the image of being washed, having your sins washed away, was the idea behind it. Now, the blood of Jesus, they would say, yes, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins, but they want to baptize in running water so the imagery sticks in your mind that your sins were washed away. Not that your sins were washed away in the river that you were baptized in. Jesus' Jesus' blood cleanses us. But they wanted to like give you an impression that my sins have been washed away and they're gone. What did Barnabas say? He said, we go down into the water laden with sins and filth. The early church knew that you weren't merely rational or emotional. You're physical people. We are physical people. And so we see things and smell things and hear things and taste things and feel things. And so for them, they thought, why not capture this when someone is baptized? As human beings, we are awakened by our senses, right? Not just our emotions and affections. What happens when you, when you wake up and someone in your house has started cooking bacon? <laughs> your, your senses are awakened, aren't they? And if they got coffee going too, you're like, oh, I'm in heaven. Where's Jesus? Right? Okay, so we're awakened by our senses and not just by our our emotions or our affections. So the apostolic fathers are saying this to people. Give them something to look at when they're baptized. Baptize people and take advantage of the physical elements so that you can instruct them in the gospel through something that can be touched and something that can be tasted and something that can be felt and something that can be smelled and something that can be sensed. They wanted you to feel the temperature of the water. Feel the temperature of running water. Why? Because for them, the sacraments are a sensible means of communicating the gospel. They are the gospel in pictures. They are the gospel which comes to you through your senses. And so they would say, if we are spiritually cleansed, By baptism in the Holy Spirit, when we were regenerated, right? If we're spiritually cleansed, are we spiritually cleansed by the Spirit when we're regenerated? Are our sins washed away when we trust in Christ? So they would say, if we are spiritually cleansed by baptism in the Holy Spirit, we're talking before water baptism, if we're spiritually cleansed by baptism in the Holy Spirit when we are regenerated, then they would say, by gosh, By golly, let us see it when we're baptized. If our sins are washed away, if we've been washed and cleansed of the filth and the muck and the mire of Adam's sin, then when we baptize someone, by gosh, by golly, let them see it. Let them sense it. What does Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what Paul is saying is that all y'all were pagans, but when you trusted in Christ, the Spirit washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. When did that happen? At regeneration, at conversion, salvation. And so the early church thinks like this. If this is what happened to us, if we were washed by the Spirit of God, and if we are commanded to be baptized, then by golly, let's do it in running water so new disciples can sense physically what has happened to them spiritually. Why? Because we're not just affected by what we see, but also by what we feel. And so the early church sought to communicate the truth of salvation. They sought to communicate the truth of the gospel through the senses. And if you really want them to, to sense it, to what has taken place when the Spirit washed them, if you really want them to sense it and to feel it, they say, you baptize them in what kind of running water? Cold. The Didache but if thou has no running water, baptize in other water, and if thou canst not in cold, then in warm. Why cold water rather than warm water? Well, let me ask you, what is more refreshing? Cool water on a hot summer day in Bakersfield or warm water? What's more refreshing after a hot, sticky, humid day of yard work in the Texas summer heat? Let me tell you from personal experience, cool water is. A nice, cold shower refreshes you and awakens you, not a hot one. And even though they lived a long time ago and didn't have showers like us, they figured out that cold water is refreshing. And so if the blessings that I have received in the gospel because I'm in union with Christ, if the blessings that I have received are refreshing, then by golly, point that out to me in baptism. Cool water communicates the refreshing blessings that we have received through belief in the gospel and the benefits that come to us from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that's what the apostolic fathers we're trying to communicate. And so, as I've been studying this the last month, I'm thinking, the next time we have baptisms right. here, I may not turn on the heater. <laughs> Which is the one thing that we always try to do. Is, don't forget to, one, get the dead spiders out. we got to get the skimmer and get the dead spiders out. And the other thing is, make sure you flip the switch that makes the water warm. I don't know yet. What's that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But there's something about feeling the refreshing waters as you come in that, you know, you would remember your baptism if the water's cold. Now, Martin Luther said, remember your baptism. He said, when you wash your face, remember your baptism. Why? Because you're being reminded of all the refreshing blessings that come to you when the Spirit of God washed you and... And when you were baptized, and he's saying, anytime you wash your face, he says, remember your baptism. If we had really cold water, I don't think many people would have a hard time remembering their baptism. I don't know. I'll probably, we'll probably still turn the heater on, but it just, the thought occurred to me. I thought, hmm, why not? But then I got to get in there, so. <laughs> so what do you do if you don't have any running water, cold or warm? 
They said you can use warm. If you don't have, can't find running water, make sure it's cold. If you don't have cold, I guess you can use warm. And if you don't have any kind of running water, then the Didache says, but if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I know uh, one of my professors in seminary is a part of a Southern Baptist church, and so what he, he says he would do is he would baptize people, dunk them, and then when they came up, because he's a church historian, he would have a pitcher of water, and he would pour water three times in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, what is this, so if you don't have that, you can pour it out. What is essential in baptism? I mean, what's the one ingredient you got to have? Water. I think Martin Luther also said, if you can't find any water, baptize them in beer. Of course, they sprinkled back then, so they didn't fill up, you know, he's Luther, and so they're going to baptize their babies, and they don't have, like, big baptistries full of Coors Light. But he said, if you don't have any water, use beer if you have to. But what's essential in baptism is water, and we see that in Scripture, the Spirit being poured out. So... The, the Apostolic Fathers in the Didache are saying, try to find some water that's deep enough, that's flowing, and that's cold. And if you can't find cold water, then I guess find a warm river. If you can't find a cold or warm river, then you can pour water out three times on top of their head. And so pouring out of water kind of symbolizes this covering. Where is the biblical support for pouring water in baptism instead of immersing? Where are they getting that idea? Where do we see the pouring out of Someone in Scripture. Jesus on the cross. Jesus, oh, they, they might have gone to that as well. They might have gone to Jesus' uh, side being pierced. But at Pentecost, right? When Peter's preaching, he says that, that God is going to pour the Holy Spirit out. And so they were looking at Pentecost and saying, we do see there is this element of Jesus in heaven, ascended and coronated as King of Kings. And at Pentecost, he is pouring the Spirit out down upon the church. And so they would look at that and say, if you can't find cold or warm running water, get a pitcher and pour it over their heads. Again, the apostolic fathers are working with the scriptures that they have, and they see baptism as an opportunity to communicate the richness of the gospel to those who learn visually and physically. Questions or comments? Yes. Um, this is before infant baptism. Would, well, would they have baptized children and or? Yeah, as far as we know, the Didache is like 50, 60 AD. Is, it's the earliest that it is uh, that people believe. Some people believe it was written in the middle of the second century. So depending on your faith tradition, uh, some people would say infant baptism was happening from Pentecost on. Because for them, they would say the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was circumcision. And the sign of the covenant in the New Testament right at Pentecost is baptism. That becomes the sign that you put on your children that you belong to the family of God like circumcision was. And so there's debate on which side you're on, on whether you need to be immersed or whether you can be an infant can be baptized. And so uh, depending on which side of the argument you're on, you're going to go back in church history and, and point at different things and say this. And so um, infant baptism, we at least know by the beginning of the second century, um, I think it's the beginning of the second or third century when Tertullian is writing. He's the first one that writes and says 
infant baptism is not valid. So I'm thinking, if I'm correct, it's about late 190s to 200s. Tertullian is writing and saying infant baptism is not valid. And so sometime between Pentecost and that point, people began baptizing infants. And then after that, it really took off. And the, the church really, from about that point on, baptized infants all the way up to the Reformation. That's what everyone did. And then the Anabaptists in the Reformation pushed back on this and said, no, we don't see that. People should be immersed. And so if they were baptized as an infant and then they came to faith in Christ, we need to rebaptize them again. But really from about, again, church history dates are movable. From about 200s or so, we see that infant baptism really became the thing that everyone did. So, And really Protestant infant baptism such as the Presbyterians would be different from a Roman Catholic infant baptism yes. where Roman Catholics would believe that infant baptism cleanses them of the original sin Yes. where in Presbyterian it's just a sign of the yeah. covenant. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. yeah. For the Roman Catholic the water washes away Adam's sin and so now your baby is perfect mm-hmm. and then he'll accumulate and become a really rotten sinner. But baptism at that moment washes away Adam's sin and they're perfect and then they slowly become you know, a full-fledged Adamite again, right? But Presbyterian circles would say this is the sign, like circumcision, that you belong to the church community. And so they will baptize uh, an infant or a baby, however old they are, and say you're a part of the church family. And when you grow up at whatever point, if you repent and believe, then... You will be regenerated and all of those promises are yours. Because what does Peter say in Acts uh, chapter 2? He says, repent and be baptized. This promise is for you and what? Your children. Your children and all who are far off. And so Peter is saying, it's Pentecost now. We don't do circumcision. Now we do baptism and repent and believe. He's talking to Jewish people. Repent, turn. We're not doing circumcision anymore. Repent and believe, and this is for you and your children and all who are far off. Now, of course, they still circumcised, and Paul actually circumcised Timothy later on because they were going into an area, and, and Paul didn't want that to be a hindrance. But that's the difference between the two, between Roman Catholics and what Presbyterians. So, you know, all up through here, Augustine, all the way up to church history, Augustine, all the people we're going to look at, through the creeds and the councils leading up to John Calvin and Luther, everyone baptized their kids and said, We're, you're a part of the family of God, and it doesn't save you. And it certainly doesn't wash away Adam's sin like the Catholics, because Luther's going to push back on that like the Catholics. But they're putting the sign and seal on their children and saying, when our children grow up and repent and believe, all these promises are theirs. I mean, and obviously... The, the Spirit has to regenerate our little kids to repent and believe. And so I don't know the exact dates when it really switched to where, as far as I know, the church up to the Reformation is just baptizing infants. And so those who argue for that could go back to the Didache and say, I don't know what they would do with, uh, with uh, Barnabas saying, we go down into the waters and come out. I don't know how they would wrestle with that or if they would just say that was one guy's interpretation as he's wrestling with scripture. So anyway. Questions or comments? Got one more section here to go through. 
Uh, it'll be really brief. The two non-negotiables in baptism, I think it's the bottom part of your paper. Uh, the two non-negotiables in baptism in the second century church are water, no surprise, and the Trinitarian formula. So why do we baptize in the name of the Trinitarian God? Why do we stress uh, his oneness and his threeness? Well, here's why. Because you can be an Islamic or a Jewish person and affirm and believe in God's oneness. So Muslims and Jews would agree with us that God is one. But you cannot be a Christian and just believe in God's oneness alone. To be a Christian, you have to be able to count to what? Three. Okay. Our God is distinctive from the God of the Muslims and the God of Jews. The Christian God is distinctively Trinitarian. Our God is both one and three. One God eternally existing in three persons. So any final questions or comments? Lord willing, next week we'll finish up. Uh, we'll look at a few other things in the Didache. And uh, we'll look at the Lord's Supper. And then hopefully... Uh, after next week, we might begin part of it, depending on how far I get in my notes. We'll start looking at the apologists, and there are those who are making a defense of Christianity as Rome is bringing its pressure upon the church and making false accusations against them, saying you guys are cannibals because you eat and drink the blood of your Lord, and you guys are, uh, there's incestuous relationships happening here because you call each other brother and sister, and you're married to your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ. And so uh, Rome is going to start bringing these accusations against the church, and people like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus are going to stand up and make a defense for the church and say, you've got, your understanding is wrong about what we are about. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the benefits that come to us from Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Uh, these wonderful, refreshing benefits of forgiveness and justification, uh, glorification and sanctification. That you, Father, that your spirit regenerated us so that we could turn from our sins and trust in your son. And we thank you for that. Help us as a church uh, body and a church family to help disciple people, disciple especially the children here at Grace and the teenagers to teach them the fundamental uh, beliefs of the Christian faith so that they understand those things when they come and seek to be baptized, Lord, so that they would remember their baptism and grow in their appreciation of all that it symbolizes and means. So help us. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.